welcome to Insight. I'm Charlie, and with me today, as always, is Allie. How are you, Allie? I am doing pretty good. How are you? I'm okay. Hanging in there. Very pregnant. (laughs) Very pregnant. That's going to be my answer for a couple episodes. Just very pregnant. Tonight, we're going to discuss the disappearance and murder of Zara Baker. This case has been suggested a number of times, with Kathy and Kiki being our first, so thank you for the recommendation. We included this in our poll for our one-year anniversary episode, and it came in second, so I know there's an interest in hearing this case. It also has an Australia-U.S. crossover. Azara was born and raised in Australia, but spent her last two years in the U.S., That said, I will admit that this case is one of the hardest ones for us that we've covered. I know different things get to different people, and we tend not to do terribly graphic cases, but this case kind of hits several of those things that make cases difficult for me. So you're just going to have to hang in there with us as we, we go through this case. Zara Baker was born on November 16, 1999, in Wagga Wagga, New South Wales, to Adam Baker and Emily Dietrich. Emily and Adam split up when Zara was still a baby, and while she was dealing with serious postpartum depression, Emily decided to give custody of Zara over to Adam. Adam moved to Newcastle to live with his family about six and a half hours away. And Emily last saw Zara when she was about eight months old. According to her family, Adam made it very difficult for Emily to see Zara. He would change his phone number anytime Emily got a hold of it again, and he moved several times. In 2004, there were some solid job opportunities at a sugar mill where Adam and his family could all get jobs, his mom, his brother. And Zara was four years old, so they packed up and they moved to a small town near Townsville, Queensland. Zara was being raised by Adam and his extended family, especially Adam's mother, who really adored her sweet and funny granddaughter. They were extremely close. Around this time, Emily lost all contact and all track of where Adam and Zara were. She didn't know where they were living, and she would spend time off and on over the years going on the internet and doing searches looking for her. In 2005, when Zara was only five years old, she was diagnosed with bone cancer. Two years later, the news got worse when she was diagnosed with secondary lung cancer. In 2008, amazingly, the aggressive treatments worked and Zara was considered in remission. There was no signs or symptoms of the cancer in her body. Her three-year battle with cancer, it was over. But cancer treatments aren't without their own downsides, so it isn't a battle won without long-term effects. As a result of the bone cancer, Zara's left leg was partially amputated and she used prosthetic lower leg. The treatment for the secondary lung cancer left her hearing impaired and she used hearing aids. More than this, though, one thing that reportedly never changed was Zara's personality. She was still the same happy and trusting and friendly girl she was before all of this. During Zara's battle with cancer, Adam started spending his evenings socializing online. And you can imagine this happening being a single working parent. It leaves little time for socializing. Add on that you're taking care of a child who is in and out of the hospital, having surgery, 
And dealing with the side effects of chemotherapy, you have even less time. So while Zara would sleep, Adam would be online, particularly part of the instant messaging virtual universe. This is like a chat room, but on speed. You have an avatar that walks around while you chat with people. It's actually pretty cool looking. It's similar to Second Life, if anyone's familiar with that. Anyway, while in this virtual universe, he met a woman named Lisa Fairchild who lived in North Carolina. They conducted their entire relationship online. Lisa eventually flew to Queensland to meet Adam. And not just meet him, she just kind of moved in with him, Zara, and his parents. And it seemed unclear from the reading I did whether or not her moving there and not going back was ever part of the plan. But regardless, she stayed. She was seven years older than Adam and told him she had been married once previously. She had been a police officer who was shot in the line of duty. She also said she had worked as a bounty hunter. Adam's friends and family weren't entirely sure what to make of Lisa. She came across as that person who has a lot of stories, and you get the feeling most of them are probably not true. But in July of 2008, Adam and Lisa married in Adam's yard. A few months later, Adam announced to his family that he, Lisa, and Zara were moving to the U.S., now, this was rather abrupt news and very concerning to the family. For one, they'd been raising Zara for eight years, and he was about to take her across the world away from them and everyone she knows. Second, Australia has universal health care. Zara's ongoing care, and we're talking about hearing aids, prosthetic legs as she grows, and just ongoing scans and screenings, all of this is covered in Australia under a program called Medicare. But in the US, you have to pay for insurance to cover these things. And then, well, they don't always pay and then they may only pay a certain amount. How is he going to afford these bills? He assured them that Lisa had the money to cover it. In September of 2008, Zara's photograph was published for an event for kids who were battling or had battled cancer. Emily and her family had found the picture and then knew where Zara was living. Sadly, it was too late because by the time she could make contact, they were already out of the country. Even Adam's mother wasn't entirely sure where in the US they were headed when they left in December of 2008. I'm sure some listeners are thinking, how in the world did this happen since immigration to the US can't be done abruptly like this due to the wait for a visa and going as a spouse trying to get citizenship or residency in the U.S., there's a process. But Adam and Lisa decided to take a shortcut. He applied for a tourist visa. Now, a tourist visa does not allow you to work in the U.S. or stay more than six months. Now, Adam's status as an undocumented immigrant does come up later, which is why I'm mentioning it now. And we do have to take a quick break before we go any further for a word from our sponsor. Buying great sheets is an easy way to upgrade your life. The right sheets can make or break a good night's sleep. And being very pregnant, trust me, I know how important sleep is. You can feel better and more well-rested every day. Even though quality sheets make for quality sleep, most high-end bedding is marked up by more than 300%. Brooklinen cuts out unnecessary markups and manufacturing waste in order to offer exquisite designs and exceptional savings across their entire collection. They have versatile colors, 
patterns, and you can mix and match these effortlessly to complete any look you want for your bedroom. Brooklinen is the fastest growing bedding brand in the world because people love these products. Their sheets have over 12,000 five-star reviews, and I'll tell you one of them is mine. After getting our first set of Brooklinen sheets on the bed, I went ahead and ordered a second set because I wanted to have them available to change when it was time to change the bedding for the wash. I love my Brooklinen sheets. Try these sheets and I know you'll love them too. Brooklinen.com has an exclusive offer for our listeners. Get $20 off and free shipping when you use promo code SITE at Brooklinen.com. In fact, Brooklinen is so confident that you'll love your new sheets that they offer a risk-free 60-night satisfaction guarantee and a lifetime warranty on all of their sheets and comforters. There is no reason not to give these sheets a try. The only way to get $20 off and free shipping is to use promo code SITE at Brooklinen.com. That's B-R-O-O-K-L-I-N-E-N.com, promo code SITE. Brooklinen, these are the best sheets Life in North Carolina was anything but stable for Zara. The first six months were spent living with Lisa's father. He eventually kicked them out, and three reasons have been given to this in the media. One is that there were dispute about money. Second was that it was related to Lisa's drug use. And the third was that it was about Lisa's treatment of Zara. They then moved into an apartment in Granite Falls. The landlady lived on site. In fact, she lived in an apartment right next to them. They weren't really consistent paying the rent, but the main issue with them was the domestic violence between Adam and Lisa. After one particularly bad fight, she told them they had to go, so they moved out. But here's the odd thing. She had only seen Zara on the day they moved in. She assumed she was just a visiting relative, and there was obvious violence in the home. But they had no idea Zara was also living there. They then moved into a trailer park. Zara would often play outside with the other kids, but calls for child services began. Or what I should say, the calls continued. There were reports that Lisa's family had started calling back when they lived with her father, reporting Lisa's mistreatment of Zara. One media account said that reports had been made in several different county agencies over the two years Zara had lived in the US, but all of that was private. Neighbours at the trailer park reported that Lisa would make Zara run up and down the hill that led to the trailer. She claimed it was part of Zara's therapy to learn to use her prosthetic better. But doing this was quite painful for Zara, and Lisa would yell and curse at her during this so-called therapy. But she did it because Lisa told her she could have a bicycle if she learnt to run on her leg, and Zara, she very much wanted a bicycle. Neighbours called child services. One even called the school and said the teacher told her she had similar concerns of abuse and some concerns that Zara was missing a lot of school. Now, it's not uncommon for abused children to be kept home when they have visible bruising. But at one point, Zara did show up at school with a black eye and two teachers made a home visit over it. While the school can't comment on matters like this, it's largely reported that the school also called child services. In spite of the neighbours witnessing Lisa hitting and cursing at Zara, she would always try to brush off the injuries as Zara being clumsy and falling down a lot. I think this gives us a glimpse into Lisa. She really felt like she could display this behaviour, but still talk her way out of it. But you can almost understand why she did this, because in spite of two years of calls to Child Protective Services from family, neighbours, and most likely the school, she retained custody of Zara. In fact, the open investigation against the Bakers for abuse was closed without action taken on August 6, 2010. 
After the trailer park, the family moved to Hickory into a small house that was owned by Adam's boss, Mark Coffey. Adam was working with a landscaping and tree service company. This was the fourth move in less than two years, and it was yet another school, except this time Zara was never enrolled in that school. Lisa told everyone that she decided to homeschool Zara. Now, I spent a decade of my life homeschooling my children, and it makes me sick that people would use that as a cover for abuse, and that's very likely what she was doing. There is no evidence of any schoolwork being done. Lisa did none of the required reporting for a homeschool in her state. The truth is Lisa had just managed to get the abuse case closed against her, and it sounds like she just didn't want to risk another one coming. Without the neighbors at the trailer park watching, and without the school expecting to see Zara every morning, Zara disappeared. I've seen varying reports of how long they lived at the house in Hickory, really anywhere from six weeks to 12 weeks, yet no one knew a child lived in the home. She was never seen outside playing. Adam and Lisa came and went, just like they did in that apartment, without anyone seeing Zara with them. It has also been alleged that Lisa kept Zara locked in her room most of the day, only allowing her to eat one meal a day and for a limited amount of time. Can I ask a stupid question about homeschooling? Is there regular checks? Do people come and do checks that certain schoolwork is being done? In the U.S., homeschooling is regulated by the state. So literally 50 states, we have 50 different laws. In North Carolina, I believe they had to report every year that they're going to homeschool, and they may have had to show some type of proof of progress. But generally, you only have to do that once a year towards the end of the school year. So there wouldn't have been anything for her to do at this point except register that she was homeschooling and notify the school. Okay. But yeah, there's no regular—I don't think any state has regular checks. We also know her medical needs were neglected. While Lisa did take her to get hearing aids from a local charity— And this was publicized on the news, which is how we know it happened. Authorities have only been able to confirm one visit to the doctor in the two years Zara lived in North Carolina. This was a growing girl with a prosthetic leg who was newly in remission after battling cancer, two types of cancer. Follow-up after treatments is usually three or four times a year for the first year or two, and then once or twice a year after that. One medical visit in the first two years after treatment is completed is absolutely medical neglect. We will talk more about Adam later, but I'll just put in here that there have been no direct accusations of abuse against him from anything I've seen. This all leads us up to October 9, 2010. At five in the morning, Lisa called 911. She said she woke up to use the bathroom and saw a fire in the backyard. Adam said he heard a car door. He didn't see anything out of the front door, but he did see the fire in the backyard. Now, there are piles of wood and mulch on the property. It was a little less than an acre, and Adam's boss used the property to hold some of the wood that they hauled away. When the fire department arrived, the fire was over a pile of mulch, about nine square feet, but wasn't as nearly as damaging as it could be, considering how much wood was in the backyard. The fire didn't seem suspicious at first and was quickly put out. But when a police officer arrived to check on what was going on, Adam handed him a handwritten ransom note that he found on the windshield of his Chevy Tahoe, 
which is a sports utility vehicle that belonged to Adam's boss, who let him use it as a company car. The ransom note said, Mr. Coffey, you like to be in control. Who is in control now? We have your daughter and your pot-smoking redhead son is next, unless you do what is asked. One million unmarked will be in touch soon. Also written on the ransom note twice, it was written at the top and the bottom of the note, were the words, no cops. Mark Coffey actually arrived on the scene shortly after the note was turned over and he confirmed his daughter, who was with him, she was safe. They thought perhaps the note was a threat from a former employee who may not know that Mark wasn't driving the SUV anymore. The ransom note was put in an evidence bag and taken from the scene. Later that same day, Adam was outside in the yard working and a little before 2 p.m., Lisa came running out and told him that Zara was missing. He drove around the block looking for her in the event she had wandered off, even though that wasn't like her. He then drove to the tennis club to find Mark and told Mark that he thinks the person who wrote the ransom note took Zara instead of Mark's daughter, perhaps not realizing that Mark didn't live on the property. And Mark, being a sensible human being, told him to call 911. So at 2 p.m., the second 911 call was made from the Baker home. In the call, Adam mentioned the earlier fire incident and that apparently Zara was taken instead of Mark's daughter. He said they checked on Zara around 2.30 in the morning and she was in her bed, asleep. He theorized that the fire was started to get him and Lisa distracted and out of the house while someone snuck in and took Zara. He also said that Zara had a prosthetic leg that was also gone. And now this stood out immediately. It's unlikely Zara would have been wearing her leg when she was in bed sleeping. And it's unlikely a kidnapper would want her to have it. She would be much easier to control if she didn't have it. Another thing that struck investigators as odd is how calm Adam sounded on the 911 call. This calm exterior would continue... The police eventually realized that this was just Adam. We often read guilt into people who have a flat affect or aren't terribly emotive, but the truth is that some people are just naturally like that. While police searched the property and area for Zara, Lisa and Adam were taken to the police station to give full interviews, and they both took polygraphs. The police told Lisa that they were working to eliminate her and Adam as suspects so that they could move forward with the investigation. During the questioning, she was all over the place emotionally. Sometimes she would be crying or looking like she was crying. Sometimes she was chatty and almost friendly. She was never angry or aggressive, and she did agree to the polygraph. They asked her three questions. Do you know the person who wrote the ransom note? Do you know if anyone has harmed Zara? Did you hurt Zara? She said no to all three and was found to be deceptive in all three answers. The next thing they wanted from her was a handwriting sample so they could compare it to the ransom note. I'm not sure if she knew she failed the polygraph at this point because she was still cooperating. They had her produce 26 handwriting samples, 21 with her right hand, which was her dominant hand, and five with the left. On first glance, investigators thought the samples were a pretty good match though they had to get an expert in there to be sure. And when they confronted her with this, telling her these handwriting samples look just like the note, 
that's when she was done talking to investigators. Now, Adam's interview went a little differently, and he kept talking even after his interview was finished. He was very calm, which struck investigators as odd since his daughter was missing. Initially, he was more of a suspect than Lisa was. Adam claimed that he and Lisa had taken Zara to Oktoberfest the night before, though investigators knew this wasn't true. Mark Coffey had already said he saw them when they left Oktoberfest and Zara wasn't with them. When he was pushed on this, he confessed that this was a lie. Lisa had told him to say that because the truth was it had been about two weeks since he had last seen his daughter. Lisa was supposed to go to Oktoberfest, but Lisa told him she wasn't feeling well, so they left home without her when they went. Now, how could he not see his daughter for two weeks? It eventually came back to Lisa telling him that Zara was either just hanging out in her room or asleep whenever Adam was around. This was the investigation into a missing child, who the authorities were becoming more and more convinced was going to turn into a homicide investigation. This wasn't the investigation into someone being a crappy or disinterested father. It's a little hard for me to imagine being a parent and living in a house with a 10-year-old for two weeks and it never occurring to him that it was odd that he hadn't seen her. Now, he was asked three polygraph questions as well, and these were, do you have any kind of involvement in your daughter's disappearance? Do you have any direct involvement in hurting Zara? And do you have any knowledge about who may have been involved in hurting your daughter? He answered no to all three and showed deception in the last question. It is really odd that he never saw his daughter in two weeks and didn't, that didn't strike him as odd. Because I check on my teens by noon if they're not out of bed, which happens pretty much daily over the summer. I think there there was an article I read that I think put it best when They said perhaps Adam is a guilty, innocent person. He didn't harm his daughter and didn't know what was happening in the home, but he's guilty of not knowing because he should have known. As the saying goes, ignorance is bliss. I think he chose to turn a blind eye because he loved Lisa and wanted to believe that she wasn't doing what she was doing. I I think he chose the easier path and, like you said, purposely looked away. During the investigation that would follow, Lisa's past came out, and it was not what Adam thought. He knew she had been married previously, once in fact, but the truth is that Adam was her seventh husband. Though not really, because she was already married to someone else when she married Adam. And it turned out to be someone Adam became friends with here in the U.S., and he thought the man was Lisa's brother. Lisa had had her first baby as a teenager. She was married briefly when she was 18. A year or so later, she married again, had two more children. When they split, she left her son with her ex and she took the two girls with her. These were her only three children, though she would go on to marry a couple more times. Some of these marriages overlapped, so the legality of all of them is questionable. Multiple husbands have made allegations of domestic violence against Lisa. One marriage was never legally dissolved, and her marriage to husband number six wasn't legally over until a year after she married Adam. So it looks like she was actually technically married to at least one, possibly two men at the time she married Adam. That might also explain why they pursued a tourist visa for Adam and not a spousal visa. Lisa would have known there was no way the spousal visa would be approved when the U.S. government looked into her previous marriages. 
Lisa also had a criminal record, mostly petty crimes like bad checks, uh, getting utilities turned on in other people's names, things like that. She would also make up lies about her health and her kids' health for attention. She had a hysterectomy, yet claimed she was pregnant. She claimed to have cancer. She would also say her girls were sick when they weren't. One story reminds me of the Dee Dee Blanchard case. She would make one of her daughters sit in a wheelchair while she pushed her around. Lisa's ex-husbands also alleged that she neglected and abused her two daughters. There were calls to child services on behalf of those daughters who were grown by the time she married Adam. But like with Zara, it doesn't appear any action was ever taken. Adam and Lisa were both released. There wasn't anything except suspicion to hold them on. Both had charges that could have been pressed. Lisa had some old warrants and Adam was in the country illegally. But if they were arrested, that would shut down all lines of communication. Lisa had an attorney involved, but Adam didn't and was still willing to talk. But one of Lisa's grown children called the police because Lisa talked to her about taking off to another state. It later came out she was talking to a man on the same Virtual Universe website. This man was in the UK and he had sent Lisa $10,000 after she told him she had cancer and she couldn't afford the treatments. So she had a man in the UK and $10,000. Lisa eventually confessed to writing the ransom note, but she said it was unrelated to Zara. Somehow it was a complete coincidence that a ransom note for a kidnapping was written on the same day a little girl went missing. She said she wrote the note just to get back at Mark Coffey for thinking that he was better than them. She intended on removing it when she cooled off, but Adam found it before she could do that. Now this is a crime, a fake ransom note, and letting investigators believe it was connected to Zara's disappearance. It led to a felony obstruction of justice charge on top of the other charges, and she was arraigned on October 13. In late October, Lisa and her lawyers approached the police. Lisa would tell them how Zara died and where her remains and other evidence could be found on the condition they removed the first-degree murder charge from the table. If they later went back on this and did charge Lisa with first-degree murder, they could not use any of the information she gave them in court. This only applied if she was truthful and didn't tell them anything that was contradicted with the evidence. Her story, though, it wasn't a murder confession. Lisa claimed that Zara died of an illness, not murder, and she died two full weeks before they reported her missing. She actually died on September 24. According to one of Lisa's family members, Zara had been sick for two weeks. Another story is that she choked on some food, and then Adam and Lisa freaked out. Adam was worried about his immigration status and told Lisa he would take care of it. He then dismembered his own daughter in the bathtub and the two of them drove around disposing of her remains in a few different places. In an interview years later, Lisa would even claim she wasn't sure if Adam was carrying out an Aboriginal ritual with Zara's body, which honestly, that doesn't make any sense. Lisa told authorities she would take them to Zara. Adam has held firm that he had nothing to do with Zara's death or dismemberment, period. He, honest to God, didn't know she was missing for two full weeks before Lisa had come out running, telling him that Zara was gone. That's his story, and it appears law enforcement does believe him. A cell phone search would show Lisa's phone at the sites, but not Adam's. Adam's cell phone pinged at the work site during the same time Lisa's pinged near the dump sites. 
Like I said earlier, there have been no direct allegations of abuse towards Zara against Adam. And the truth is, we may never really know what he knew of Lisa's abuse and what he didn't know, or how he didn't know. In one specific incident, he said he asked Zara privately how she had gotten hurt when he had noticed an injury, and she kept repeating what her stepmom had said. She fell in the bathroom into the vanity. He said he pulled the vanity out of the bathroom to prevent further injuries, and this is in line with what investigators found in the home. The vanity had been pulled out. On the other hand, he was interviewed when Child Protective Services came knocking. He knew people were making accusations against his wife. After the second, third, fourth accusation, you would think he would start watching more closely. But as far as the murder goes, and that's really what we're talking about here, the authorities do not believe he was involved in it. For one, when Lisa's phone pinged near the location Zara's remains were dumped, his phone was at his work site. He called Lisa to pick him up from work that day, and she said she couldn't because she had been pulled over. There is no record that she was pulled over. But Lisa's older daughter did confirm that she went to pick Adam up from work because Lisa couldn't. Also, text messages from Lisa to Adam that were sent after Zara went missing, they referred to birthday presents she was buying for Zara, and I think there's some about how Zara was feeling on a particular day. Adam did not send any similar messages to Lisa. It didn't look like he was actively covering anything up. Not as compelling in his favor, but also worth noting, when Adam was told that Lisa threw him under the bus and said that he was the one who dismembered his daughter, he didn't point the finger back at Lisa and say that she told him that she did it or he saw her do it or, okay, he was there, but she's the one who actually did it. He just continued with, I have no idea why she's saying that. I didn't do it and I don't even know that she did it. Frankly, we don't know, and I'm hard-pressed to defend him in this situation, to be honest. His daughter was gone for two weeks. He never noticed. He didn't miss seeing her, talking to her, holding her. By his own admission, he said he spent more time smoking pot than with his daughter. He had checked out, and Zara paid the price for that, and I can't defend any of that. Lisa stuck to her story that Zara was not murdered and that Adam was responsible for dismembering her. The prosecutor had some factors to weigh and tough calls to make in deciding how to charge Lisa. There was some evidence of murder here, aside from the cover-up. Blood spatter was found in Zara's room. Experts were prepared to testify that this was consistent with a blow and that it would have had to happen while Zara was still alive. The pattern indicated that there was blood pressure, and as we know, you don't have blood pressure after your heart stops. However, while Lisa brought them to Zara's remains, she didn't bring them to all of them. Zara's skull, it had not been found. Police believe that finding the skull may prove blunt force trauma to the head being the cause of death, and that's why Lisa never brought them there. If they could find the skull, they would have a stronger case. Side note though, Zara's skull was eventually found, but it didn't give clues to the cause of death. Also, if they went after first degree murder, they couldn't use any of the information they got from Lisa earlier on that due to the initial plea deal. The deal was worth it to get Zara's remains found quickly, but it did tie their hands. Almost their entire case hinged on what they learnt from Lisa. 
Still, allowing Lisa to plead out would mean a lighter sentence. North Carolina has a formula for figuring out sentencing, and it's fairly strict. Judges do not have a lot of room to give more or less time. If they let her plead out to second-degree murder, would her sentence be enough for justice? They eventually charged Lisa with second-degree murder, and negotiations for a deal were hammered out rather quickly. Her attorney first felt that they had a reasonable chance at trial, the state had no cause of death, and then he got the blood spudder report and he changed his mind. While Lisa continued to say she was innocent, they discussed taking the plea deal. She was facing a long sentence if she did go to trial. So she decided to take the deal. On September 15, 2001, Lisa pled guilty to second-degree murder. Emily Dietrich had a friend send her a photo she found online. It was a photo of Zara from a school function from a previous school year. And finally, Emily had a location on where she was. But it was all too late. Before she even made contact, she saw the news of that an Australian girl had gone missing in North Carolina. The contact she made wasn't with her daughter, but rather with the police. She was present for Lisa's plea hearing. She flew over from Australia at the last minute to be there. Lisa's sentence was 18 years, 6 months in jail, with the ability to get out in 14 years, 9 months for good behaviour. After her murder trial, Lisa was facing federal drug charges for dealing prescription medication for years. She eventually pled for this as well, getting a 10-year sentence. And she'll have to serve that after she finishes her sentence for Zara's death. Adam Baker had a number of charges against him as well, not related to Zara's death. But while those were still pending, the district attorney approved for him to go back to Australia. He wanted to go back. And the state figured it didn't benefit the state of North Carolina to spend the time and money on pursuing these small convictions. Adam was formally deported back to Australia in early 2012. It was initially reported that he took Zara's remains with him and buried them in a family plot. It was later discovered, as Zara's biological mom tried to get the information on where the remains were, that they were sent over in 2013 and delivered to Adam. He and his family then scattered the remains into the ocean at Zara's favorite beach. Lisa Baker is still maintaining her innocence. She said she was pressured into taking the plea deal and that she's planning an appeal. Her appeal options are limited since first she took a plea and second, the time limit for the traditional appeals have run out. My guess is what's being reported as a quote appeal in the media is what's known as a motion for appropriate relief. In North Carolina, there's no time limit for filing this in a non-death penalty case. So that's likely what Lisa plans on filing. She will still have her federal sentence to serve. Assuming she doesn't get anywhere with her motion for appropriate relief, she will not be eligible for release until she's 70 years old. And then on what would have been Zara's 12th birthday, the city of Hickory broke ground on a new playground called Zara's Playground. And this playground is designed for children of all abilities. It has wheelchair ramps and accessible swings. They have large seats with straps so that kids of all sizes and abilities can safely sit and enjoy swinging. And then also in 2011, Zara's law went into effect. If you remember the charges against Lisa, they involved obstruction of justice for the note and second degree murder, but nothing about dismembering Zara. That's because there wasn't a law against it. 
Zara's law put it on the books that it's illegal to dismember or desecrate a body to conceal it from the authorities. And that is ridiculous to me that there wasn't a law before that. I agree. Had this law been in effect, Lisa would have probably gotten seven more years in jail on top of her sentence. I'm not entirely convinced that Adam had no role. There is a possibility he wasn't responsible firsthand in her death, but he would have had to known that there was abuse going on. Even if he chose to turn a blind eye, you can't be completely ignorant on the fact that Zara was being abused. Yeah, this was going on for two years and people outside the home were witnessing it. So surely he saw something inside the home and chose not to stop it, chose not to leave her. To some degree, he's going to have to live with that for the rest of his life. I guess there's not a, there wasn't a crime they could prove here. I've seen people get arrested before because they knew their significant other was abusing a child and they didn't stop it and the child was severely harmed or killed. I I don't know why Adam didn't have similar charges. I, I don't. But what that sweet little girl went through in her short life, what she fought and won against the odds, only to live her last few years like she did. The fact Adam received no charge and Lisa basically only gets 14 years, it doesn't sit right with me because 14 years is not equal to that little girl's whole life that she fought so hard for the right to live. And I don't understand how a woman who has a long history of child abuse complaints against her on her own kids and then multiple complaints against her brand new stepdaughter had no one intervened people called they did what they could but for some reason the state kept letting her talk her way out of it and I don't understand how that happened Thank you guys for listening this week. We want to send some shout outs to our Patreon supporters, Jessica R, Melissa L. Thank you guys. Jennifer H. Thank you. And hello, Lindsay M and Ann W. And thank yous to those who left us five-star reviews. Good thinking Batgirl, Jesse Meow, Julie, Julie, Viva 10, KP1957, XBurnout57, Christy Lee. Hello. Do you think that's our Christy Lee? It's, it's, that's, that's Christy. Okay. Well, so shout out to Christy Lee. Hello from Canadian True Crime Podcast. I miss Cambridge and Lemon Lime Bitters. Thank you guys so much for your reviews. We really, really appreciate them and appreciate the time you took to go out and leave those. Like I've said before, iTunes doesn't always make it easy. If you want to talk to us, we are on Facebook. Just look for Insight Pod. We have a page. We have a group. The group is where we do most of the chatting. You can also talk to me directly on Twitter at InsightfulPod. You can talk to Allie on Instagram at InsightPod or email us at InsightfulPod at gmail.com. I've actually been keeping up with the emails, so that's pretty good for us. So you should get a response pretty quickly if you um, send an email. Thank you all for listening and we'll see you next week.